Good morning. Peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's great to be with you. My heart is just full of love for Evan, who is such a dear friend of mine and one of my favorite people to be around, but also for you and for what God is stirring in your community. It's really an honor to come and serve you this weekend, and I hope to do my best. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 as we continue your teaching series, Future Church. Next up on the docket is a community of contribution in a culture of careerism. You ready for that? Like, no, I'm ready for the beach. Where's the sun, by the way? Came all the way here. No sun. Genesis 1, once you arrive, please stand to your feet for the reading of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. These will be yours for food. Turn the page, chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onks are also there. The name of the second river is the Gishon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Take a seat. Let's start off with a little David Foster Wallace. Never a bad idea to start a sermon with a little DFW. In his now famous commencement address at Kenyon College, he said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. In spite of all the talk about how America is more and more secular and post-Christian, which is true, 
But if you pay close attention, America is arguably more religious than ever before. You could argue we're living through a religious revival. It's just that religion has moved over into other arenas such as politics. Leslie Newbegin warned of the rise of what he called the political religions. He said as America and the West secularized, it would not become less religious. It would just transfer and transmute over onto the political sphere. This has never been more glaring than in the last few years of all things COVID and DC. But there's another pseudo-religion that's not been in the spotlight as much recently due to COVID, but is just as much a form of idolatry built into the idolatry apparatus of Western culture that is vying for your heart's allegiance, that of work. Derek Thompson, a staff writer for The Atlantic, calls this new religion workism, or you could call it careerism. In his article, Workism is Making Americans Miserable, he writes this, Workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life purpose. The best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. But then he goes on to write, our desks were never meant to be our altars. Think of the image of a WeWork or a Google office complex with a cafe and a gym and a daycare center and a school and a community and nap pods, all designed to make your job, your life, your identity, your community of belonging, your purpose, Note how many companies and colleges are starting to use the language of family. Welcome to your family. It's not your family, just to clarify. <laughs> Work has evolved, especially for educated millennials and Gen Z, from a means of material production to a means of identity production. From something you do to someone you think you are. This is a part of a larger cultural shift across the West from an honor culture to what the Korean-German philosopher Byung Chul Han calls an achievement society in his excellent work on this subject. He writes about how in an honor culture, which is most traditional cultures around the world and even here in minorities in our country, you accrue social capital by serving well in your role in the community. You make your contribution to the community as a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a craftsperson or an authority figure or some kind of a guardian of tradition or wisdom. Now in the West, we accrue social capital through education, career, a lot of you are in college right now, career, wealth, status, fame, all of which deracinate social cohesion in the name of radical individualism. Put another way to make it very simple, value over who you are is no longer given based on who one is but on what one does. And Han, in his excellent book, The Burnout Society, writes about how the net result of an achievement society is a generational epidemic of burnout, chronic anxiety, and doping. In 2019, before COVID hit, the WHO finally included burnout in its international classification of diseases. And it's getting worse in spite of all the chatter about wellness and all of our new essential oils. In one which apparently are helpful. 
In one wide-ranging study on the rise of burnout through COVID, 89% of respondents said their work life was getting worse, not better. 62% of people had experienced burnout often or extremely often in the last few months. Only 21% rated their well-being as good and a mere 2% rated it as excellent. 2%. Translation, while work is a very good and important thing in our life, for many, especially educated urbanites, many of whom are in this room this morning, it's turned into a kind of religion, into an altar on which people sacrifice their soul, and it is a bad religion. And we're living through a key moment in American history. We all know that COVID is some kind of a before-after moment that will make more sense 10 or 20 years from now. I read an op-ed article just recently entitled, You Won't Find the Purpose of Your Life at Work. And it was basically saying, hey, we're all rethinking our life after COVID and rethinking how many hours we give to the office. And it was basically a case for, you know, working less hours and finding meaning and purpose and community outside of your job. Very good essay. But all evil is the perversion of good. The enemy cannot create. Only God can do that. The enemy can only distort and deface. And just because people abandon one bad religion, careerism, doesn't mean the next one they pursue will be any better for them or for you or the planet. You live in a city where many people don't live to work, they work to live. They work, they go have a job to make money so they can go play or go to the beach or whatever. When I checked into my hotel last night, this is so classic San Diego, the concierge said, Brunch is served until 1 p.m. here because we believe that in San Diego, every day is a vacation. <laughs> I thought, God, are you calling me here? Is there any? <laughs> Dang, shoot. Again, vacation is not a bad thing. Uh, I'm all about it, all about rest, and we work from a place of Sabbath. But if you turn leisure into a religion, it too will hollow out your soul. Not with burnout and anxiety and doping like work, but with consumerism and the cult of self. But wherever you fall on the spiritualization of work to play spectrum, the fact is that work is a key part of our life. Even if you gravitate toward the let's go surfing side of the spectrum, unless if you are independently wealthy, work consumes the vast majority of our time, something like two thirds of our life. Is there a better way to frame our work? Yes. Over against a culture of workism on one side and every day is a vacation in San Diego on the other is the biblical vision of work not as careerism or as consumerism but as contribution. Let me just sketch out a biblical theology of work in a few minutes. This is a 30,000 foot overview, not a deep dive. Genesis 1, we read the text just a minute ago. In Genesis 1, humanity is created to, is an odd word there in the English translation, to rule. The Hebrew word is radah. Can you say that? Well done. One Hebrew scholar I love defined it as to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. 
It can be translated rule or reign or have dominion. It is the language of royalty, of a queen or a king. It's to rada is something that a king does or a queen does. In fact, in the ancient Near East, the phrase, the image of God, which was misunderstood by the Western church for hundreds of years and scholars have kind of brought us back in recent decades, that phrase was used in the ancient world, the image of God, but it was used for one person and one person only for the king. The king was thought of as quasi-divine, as a king-priest, a mediator between God or the gods or the goddesses and Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. Now, if you follow that logic to its conclusion, what does that mean? That means that everybody else was not the image of God, which in turn meant that everybody else was essentially slave labor to do Pharaoh and his rich friends bidding. It was a divine sanction. It was a religious backing for injustice and inequality. Tale as old as time. Set over against ancient Near Eastern culture, the Genesis story is subversive to any and all abuse of power because it says, no, we are all made in the image of God. Not just kings, not just men, not just one ethnic group, all people are made in the image of God, full stop. This is literally the idea origin of what we now call human rights, which is a thoroughly Christian idea with no antecedent, arguably, historians would say, no antecedent in the pre-Christian world, zero. And no antecedent in the secular world. You do not get from Darwinian materialism and human beings evolved from apes by the strong praying on the weak to weed out the weaker members of society to purify the species to Black Lives Matter or whatever human rights cause you're passionate about. You get there from Genesis chapter one. In the image of God, he created them, all people, born with dignity and beauty, made to rule over the world on God's behalf, gathering up the creation's praise and worship and somehow giving it back to the creator. And if you keep reading, ruling turns out to be a lot like what we call work. In Genesis 2, we also read about the raw materials in the Garden of Eden and about its boundaries. It's an odd paragraph, right? I read it on purpose, even though it's like hard not for your mind to wander through it. Trees, water, gold, aromatic resin, onks. I don't even know what that is. Isn't that like in Lord of the Rings or something? I'm not sure. And human, and there are boundaries, this river, that river. What? Have you read that and thought, why is that there? Human is put into this new space, into the garden to, quote, work it and take care of it. Now, a short word on each. First, human is to work it. The Hebrew word is abad, and it can be translated to cultivate or to develop or to draw out something's potential. I love Tim Keller's definition of work. When in doubt, quote Tim Keller. That's just great preaching advice, any of you thinking about doing this someday. Um, based on a biblical theology of work, it is, quote, rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. 
This is true of all sorts of work. When a farmer takes soil and seed and rearranges it into a crop of food for people to eat. Or when those working at a restaurant take that same crop and other crops and rearrange them into a meal for us to share in community. Or when an entrepreneur takes an idea or a craftsperson takes a lump of metal or a parent takes a child or you fill in the blank with your life example. It's rearranging the raw materials. This is why we read in Genesis about gold and aromatic resin and onks and trees because the garden is not Central Park or what do you have here, Balboa Park, is that right? This is not this manicure design thing with nice sidewalks and people kind of mowing the lawns and God is like, Adam, here's this, called a, it's called a weed hacker, take really good care, make sure that the edge is curved just a little bit, not too much, but just the right amount. No, it's imagine like a vast, teeming, wild, dangerous wilderness. Imagine the north of Alaska or something like that. And it's teeming with life, but there's no civilization, no roads or bridges or structure, no cities, no social structures. It's just wild. And God says to Adam and to Eve, go make a world. All of this is the work of cultivation. In fact, our word culture in the English language comes straight out of this idea of cultivation. Good culture is the result of even better people who take the raw materials of planet Earth and make it or remake it into a place of Eden, of delight is what that word means in Hebrew. So first, work it. Secondly, we are to, quote, take care of it. Again, this is in verse 15. In Hebrew, the word there is shamar. Can you say that? And to shamar means to guard something or to watch over it or to protect it or can even be translated to police it. Our generation is more aware than any in a very long time of the need to take care of the earth itself and of humanity, all those in humanity, and to steward it because we believe that, in the language of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. It's not ours, it's not any nation's, any group of peoples, it is the Lord's. This means we are not, follow the logic, we are not just called to any kind of work, but to garden-like work. Our call is to continue what Adam and Eve started, to find ourselves in the story that we just read. And it's key to realize that in Genesis, the garden was a project, not a product, meaning it was designed to go somewhere. Scholars argue that God's original intention before the fall was for Adam and Eve to spread the boundaries of the garden out over the whole earth. That's why we read about those boundaries. Some argue, Gary Bashirs has been a mentor to, to Evan and I, that, that the garden was created in a war zone. It's set against this backdrop of kind of spiritual conflict. It's this like beachhead of heaven on earth and human's vocation is to spread the boundaries of the kingdom of God, this is arguably the beginning of a theology of the kingdom, the rule, the reign, the dominion of God, the place where God's will is done, where it is on earth as it is in heaven, as it should be, to spread this sphere of reality where human is in right relationship with God, with each other, with the earth, and with our own self, to spread the boundaries of that out to every corner of the earth. That's why when you get to the end of the Bible, to the end of the story that the library of scripture tells in the Revelation, the last two chapters are all about the future and they are dripping with illusion after illusion to the first two chapters of scripture to the Garden of Eden. But in Revelation, if you've read that story, it's not a garden anymore, it's a garden-like city, which is odd. 
because you would think that if Jesus' agenda was to fix and heal and rescue and save the world and deliver it, then the story would end back where it started, in the garden with all of us naked and unashamed, which is a little kinky, don't think about that. But instead, it's similar, but it's different. It's not a garden anymore, it's a garden-like city with parks and trees and a river and walls and gates and streets and dwellings and culture and food and drink and art and music and the best of ethnic contributions. Why? Because the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. It was always supposed to become a garden-like city. Now, is there a practice out of the way of Jesus or out of your emerging rule of life, and I'm so happy that you're on that journey as a church. We've been on it for years now, and it is, I think it is the future. But is there a practice to participate in this biblical theology of work, this vision of a whole other way to approach what we do, and to shift our heart, wherever we fall on that spectrum, from work as careerism or consumerism to work as contribution? Yes, it is the practice of vocation. Now, we often don't think of vocation as a practice, which is tragic because again, we spend something like two thirds of our life working. And if we cut that off from our quote, spiritual life, a phrase ironically never used once in the entire library of scripture, we essentially cut Jesus out of the vast majority of our life. We compartmentalize the great human temptation. The word vocation itself comes from the Latin vocatio, and it's just a very simple word that means calling. Now, there are three or so layers to a calling or a vocation in biblical theology. First off, layer one, we are called to follow Jesus. This is the main word that the word calling is used in the New Testament. And it goes without saying that our first and primary call is to Jesus, to apprentice under him not to our job or our career. He is our religion. One way of framing the Future Church series is as an expose of all of the rival religions of our culture and how we as followers of Jesus, right in the middle of a city like San Diego or Portland or wherever you call home, how we index our heart toward what Howard Thurman once called the religion of Jesus. Secondly, layer two, we are called to do our work as an act of discipleship to Jesus. We often think of discipleship as something separate from our job or our work or whatever it is, or our school, whatever it is that we do. We don't think of work as an act of discipleship, but if you think about it, Jesus was a craftsman for decades. If he came today, he could well have been a contractor or a software engineer or a barista or a artist or a small business owner, meaning he could very well do whatever it is that you do. We must come to view our work, whether it is paid work or unpaid. A lot of you, your primary contribution, you never get a paycheck for. You're a volunteer, you're a parent, you're a student, where it's like the opposite of paid work. You pay to do your work. Like, who thought that system up? Or whether it is paid or unpaid, whether it's glamorous or mundane, whether it generates great wealth or just kind of pays the bills or not even that, as that we must view it, whatever it is, as a key facet to our discipleship, as the place where most of us spend the bulk of our time and therefore by default as the primary context for our formation into the image of Jesus. 
the place that we work out the way of Jesus and our, quote, spiritual life. And three, kind of last layer down, we are called to play our role in the family of God and for the flourishing of humanity. Um, I'm guessing that Evan and your teaching team are similar in that we beat up a fair bit on individualism, which is a very Western phenomenon that is literally wreaking havoc in our society and for sure in the church, because the church is a family, it is a community of brothers and sisters. But were I to play devil's advocate, which I would never do because the word devil, why would any Christian ever do that? But were I to push back, you could argue that individualism comes out of Christian theology, but unmoored from God and church and the family, it's turned toxic in Western culture. But the idea that you are, and some of you coming out of a traditional culture, you recognize how beautiful and unique this idea is, that you are in Psalm 139's language, fearfully and wonderfully made, that you're not a cog in a machine, you're not just a role in a hierarchy, that, that you are a soul, that God thought you up, and when he thought you up, there was a, a sense of inertia and intention in your DNA, that you have a unique contribution to make and part to play. That is a very, that is a thoroughly Christian idea. In Christian theology, my point here is that your calling isn't something you choose. You're not plastic. You're not a whiteboard for you to become whatever you want. My dad said to me when I was a kid, Jamar, you can do anything you put your mind to. And I'm really grateful that my dad told me that. I mean, would you rather have your dad say, there's three things that maybe you won't suck at when you get up. <laughs> so I'm really grateful. But I had to learn the hard way that he was completely wrong. I can't do anything I want. I can't do anything I put my mind to. I mean, thank you for the vote of confidence, Dad. That like, is literally shaping for me in a good way. But it's not true. Our calling isn't something that we choose, like our career or where we go to college or what city we work in. It's much deeper than that. It's something we discover. We unearth. We excavate from our inner woman or man as we discover in what way am I fearfully and wonderfully made. The culture says, I am what I do. I wonder if God would say to us, you do what you are. You do who you are. Those with privilege get to dream about finding a source of income that is in line with their sense of vocation and calling from God, and then do the work of justice to extend that same opportunity to as many people as possible. But not all of us achieve that, and that's okay. Like most followers of Jesus, for sure around the world, and even in our own country, and maybe even in your own city, I don't know, don't get the privilege to align their job, their source of income, with their calling. But they still have a vocation. They still have a sense of this is what God made me to do, called me to do, put me here to do. Those of us who do get that joy to align our work with our vocation, it still will often take us decades to get into the job that's really the right fit. And no matter how great your job is, and I have a pretty good one, all work is full of toil in the language of the scriptures. And mundanity and disappointment and that harbinger of Dante's inferno that is email, even at its best. Work is not God and the ground is cursed. Now, 
How do we, inside this kind of an idea matrix, how do we repurpose our work? Again, paid or unpaid, whether you're a college student or a full-time parent or an entrepreneur or a pastor or a psychologist or you work on the back chef line of a great taco spot. I ate at one last night. If you work there, thank you. What a gift that was to my soul. I literally ever have your mind wander off during worship? It almost never happens to me, maybe once a year. <laughs> I was worshiping with Evan for a while, and then I was, found myself just thinking about the burrito we had last night. <laughs> literally thinking, what would it take to get Evan to take me back to that same spot for lunch to have that same burrito? So, honest. Can I be honest here? No? Don't worry. The regular guy is back next week. How do we repurpose our work? Paid or unpaid, glamorous or humdrum, our dream job or underemployment or unemployment, into a practice or a spiritual discipline, if you prefer that language, of vocation. Really what we're asking here is how do we do the same thing as our coworkers, but in a different way? Well, to start, our work as followers of Jesus should have, and we'll kind of end the plane here, three basic qualities. It should be motivated by love, guided by scripture, and done with excellence. First off, motivated by love. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, um, a kind of a haunting line to me, I love it, but man, is it a challenge to my heart. He writes about our labor prompted by love. Or the Greek there can be translated, our labor, our work, motivated by love or driven and animated and moved forward by, the Greek word is agape, to will the good of another ahead of your own no matter the cost to yourself. Labor motivated by love, not by ambition, not by a career that is up and to the right, not by greed, or the next check, not by status seeking, or performative identity, or power, or a search for self-worth, or validation, or to heal a father wound, or an insecurity, or to make as much money as possible in as little time as possible to go out and buy stuff, or go surfing, or go to the beach, but by love, by a desire to will the good of others, to love your neighbor as yourself. We may do the same thing as the person one cubicle over or one living room over or one desk over, but for a very different reason. Secondly, guided by scripture. Some philosophers define work as adding value to the world. Willard defined it as, Dallas Willard, a philosopher, defined it as the expending of energy to produce good. Now, if you think about work through that lens of adding value or to produce good, that means that all work is moral. Every act of work is ethical or unethical. Not all work, and this is an idea that I think, tragically, not enough Christians take seriously, and we need to. Not all work is blessable by God. We do all we can to find work that is blessable by God garden city kind of work. But the good news there is it doesn't have to be, and I just want to say this again, glamorous. It can be changing tires, a Le Schwab. Do you have Le Schwab here? No? Oh, it's a great company. Move to the Pacific Northwest. We have rain and a great tire company. Or it can be bussing tables, or it can be pulling weeds and mowing lawns. In fact, historians argue that Christianity was the first worldview to ever 
dignify manual labor, not as the work for slaves and beneath the dignity of the oligarchy and the ruling class, but as good and honest work before God and humanity. And third and last, our work should be done to the best of our ability. There's a great line in Colossians, quote, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. We are to work as if Jesus was our boss, as if the great judgment was like the ultimate 360 review. Dorothy Sayers, if you've ever read her, many years ago, decades ago, said the best way to serve Jesus at work is to, in her language, serve the work. And what she meant by that was just to be really good at your job. So if you wanna serve God as a flight attendant, or you wanna serve God as an accountant, or you wanna serve God as a parent, you wanna serve God as an architect, just be darn good at your job. In her classic irreverent tone, she said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Because that's love. It's a tangible act of love. You do your work and you do it not just motivated by love, but you do it well. You are loving your neighbor. There's a Hebrew concept called, that doesn't get us all the way or anywhere close to the depth of the kingdom of God, but it's a great step in the right direction. There's a Hebrew concept called kavana that Alan Hirsch writes about in The Shaping of Things to Come. It basically means, that word kavana basically means the power of holy intent. The power of what happens when you do something and you elevate that action, that piece of work, you elevate it with your full presence, you bring the best of every ounce of skill you have to bear on it, and you do it with this intention of love, this outflow of goodwill toward another. Some rabbis teach that when the fall happened, the manifest glory of God was shattered into tiny imperceptible pieces. But when we do our work with kavana or holy intent, when we bring our full presence to it and all of our skill or intelligence or acumen or gifting and a motivation of love and we up the excellence of our work or any ordinary task, we are reweaving the manifest glory of God into the created order. We're putting Eden back together again in a fragmented and fractured world. One rabbi tells a story about a cobbler who used to weave shoes together. As he tied the top of the shoe to the bottom of the shoe, he would whisper under his breath, I'm reweaving glory. Say that next time you click send. I'm reweaving glory. This is the barista who just doesn't, you know, pour milk into the latte and set it on the counter here but does, you know, the heart, next level. And then, and then if you're a new barista, just as a customer, make sure that the lid, the sippy part, isn't on the crease, on the line, you know what I mean? That's the worst, and then it will start to leak over your, like, nice outfit. This is first world problems, I know, but I mean, it's still, it's a thing. And then you set it on the counter, and you make eye contact, and you smile, and just have a great day. 
and you just bless someone, if nothing else, than with the radiance of your face in Christ. This is the construction worker who doesn't just throw together a bathroom remodel as cheap as possible, but does every step with the passion and the precision of an artist at his craft. It's the preschool teacher who doesn't just run a daycare center for kids, but will get down at eye level and see into the soul of an emerging human being and speak their destiny over them. You could go on with example after example after example. You thought you were just spell checking your email or making your kids a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or setting a table, but actually you're reweaving glory. You're taking a world that has been spinning out of control due to the entropy of sin, and you are remaking it into a place of delight where human beings can flourish with God, with each other, with the earth, and with their own self. In my 40s now, early 40s, but in my 40s, I think I have the self-awareness now, um, another word for that is humility, but that's less of a virtuous concept and more of just accuracy and self-perception concept. I think I have the self-awareness to see how much of the first half of my life was motivated not by love, but by ego, by desire, and by fear. In my job, it's incredibly easy to do really good things for really wacky motivations and have people pat you on the back for it. It's incredibly easy to justify workism or workaholism as serving God rather than call it out for what it actually is. Ambition or power or greed or fear, insecurity or the desire to fill up some hole left there by your family of origin or your psychosis. As some of you know, I just, um, maybe none of you know, but I just stepped down after 18 years from the lead role in our church. And uh, my family and I are about to take a, a long break, a long season of rest. San Diego is sounding really great for a visit. And, um, and then come back to a new role, a new kind of phase of work. And one of the things that I'm really praying for is that as I come back with the accumulated wisdom of the last kind of two decades of work, that I would come back more free than ever before. Free just to, to make my small contribution. And the older you get, the more you kind of realize, like I think this is my small contribution. This is what I have to make. And it's not something that you're chasing, it's more and more just something that you're humbly giving within your capacity and empowered by God. And I would love for the second half to be more free. I think I'm feeling that year after year. I mean, isn't that what following Jesus is about? Deepening our surrender to him and in doing so, him enlarging our freedom. My point is that all of us have a unique contribution to make, whether it's through your job or through another avenue. There's a person that God made you to be. There's a healthy, non-toxic version of individualism. There are things that God made you to do, that he put you here, that he bottled up in your heart. There's a line I've just been meditating on and praying so much in Paul's letter to Thessalonians where he says, may God bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. And I pray that over you. May you pray that over me. May God bring to fruition your every desire for goodness, your every deed prompted by faith. There are desires for goodness that God has put into your heart 
They might be for 40 years from now or four years from now or four minutes from now. But there are desires that if you actually sit with God, and sure, they're wonky and they're corrupted by our flesh and our ego and our fear. But if you go below that, if you go to the deep inner woman or man, those desires are the spirit of God desiring through your desire. May God bring that to fruition and every deed that is prompted where you step out in faith. Because you have something that God put you here to do. And I might not ever get on Instagram, might not ever get respect in our culture, it might not ever even get an applause, but it will get something far better. Well done, good and faithful servant. When you stand before God at the judgment, and what is judgment? It is ultimately the moment of truth. When you stand before God and you hear, well done. In closing, if you want um, a very easy kind of entry-level practice to take this teaching, which is very much at the kind of inspiration level, and move to formation, you want to find a way to habituate this into your life, here's a very simple idea. Just dedicate a few acts of work this week as acts of kavana, of holy intent. Whether you sit down this afternoon and you schedule them out, you know, one each day, or one on Wednesday, one on Friday, these two opportunities, or whether it's spur of the moment, you're just there in the workplace or with your kids or wherever, and you see an opportunity and you jump at it to take something and do it with kavana, take it to a new level, do it better than what you need to, to go above and beyond, to bring your full presence and intention of love. Take that and begin to habituate it into your life. To end, Cahil Gibran, the Lebanese artist, once said, and I love this line, that work is love made visible. In the end, work, like all of life, is about becoming people of love. One way to frame the entirety of the spiritual journey in the way of Jesus, uh, this is language from a, a writer I love, Dr. Gary Moon, is to frame it as moving off of the egoic operating system into a place of agape. By egoic operating system, he means that most of us from birth, we operate off of this default setting of ego, just meaning like, what do I want and what do I need? And if you don't believe me, hang out with a two-year-old. I don't know how anybody is a humanist and a parent. I have no idea, right? Just hang out with a beautiful small child and realize they are run based on what do I want and what do I need. And every person at some level is either an obstacle or an object. It's either something in the way of what I want or I need, or it is what I want and it is what I need. Right? We all start here, and tragically, many people never mature beyond it. Many people are 50, 60, 70, 80, and they are still run by what do I want, what do I need, this person is an obstacle, or this people is a person is an object for me to consume. Following Jesus. Formation, the spiritual journey, the kingdom, whatever you want to call it, is about moving off of that. It's about deepening our surrender to Jesus as Lord, and in doing so, him deepening and enlarging and expanding our freedom to become people of agape, people who are literally motivated by love, who by default will the good of another ahead of our own. This is where work, it is the path, or it is one of them, a daily invitation to move off of the egoic and to become a person of love. Working to earn love is a bad religion. 
working to express the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit coming from inside the deepest recesses of your being as you were fearfully and wonderfully made by God as an act of worship to God and love and service to your neighbor with kavana, with holy intent as you're reweaving glory one simple act at a time. That is religion at its best. Let's stand together and pray. I just want to just give you a moment, we're not in a hurry, just to take a few deep breaths. And let the Spirit of God just illuminate in your heart how he's coming to you through this teaching, through the scripture that we read, through this biblical theology of work. Holy Spirit, we beg for light. We ask that you would illuminate our heart and our imagination, even that you would touch our body right now. And you'd stir up in and set before our mental field of vision, whether it's in an image or a word or a phrase or a scripture, just would you clarify, God, how you are coming to us in this moment? Because we're yours. We're here at church to deepen our surrender to you and just pray, God, have your way. Here we are. Illuminate our minds.